Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I'm your host, Stuart in L.A., joined by a very special guest this time. Yep, from under the hill and over the river and uh, I guess through the woods. This is Jacob. <laughs> is that is that Tolkien? <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> it started off Tolkien, and then I think when it went somewhere else. You went to Grandma's house. <laughs> you took a wrong turn and somewhere in Middle Earth, which is easy to do. It's a big, vast place. I got a little lost myself. We are covering new terrain for me here at Books and Nachos. I've done numerous shows tying into movie reviews. We're doing over at our sister podcast. This show is no different. We will, for our gold, silver, and platinum donation series, be covering Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings. And as a tie-in, obviously, we need to talk about the books. Epic 20th century literature. There's no way that we could approach those movies without first looking at these books. But fantasy is a tough genre for me. For me, this is relatively new territory. Uh, For a short period of time, Basically, in the early 80s, when everyone was playing Dungeons & Dragons, I did get a little bit into fantasy literature, and I read a little bit of it. I did read The Hobbit once in grade school, and I have read Stephen King's Eyes of the Dragon, uh, Black Cauldron, a few other works. But by and large, I don't read a lot of fantasy, so I'm definitely approaching... The Hobbit, Tolkien, all of this very much as a wide-eyed newbie. If it comes to the fantasy genre, I would say I'm a newbie too. I, I'm definitely biased when it comes to Tolkien. If it has to do with fantasy, if Tolkien wrote it, I'll probably read it. But not a big fan of the fantasy genre. And the reason I'm so biased for Tolkien is that, i just put it all out there, my dad worked on the screenplay for the Bakshi Lord of the Rings. So it was something I grew up with, this universe, this Middle Earth, something that was always around me. I've read some other fantasy novels. They just don't scratch any itches for me. So I grew up with Tolkien, so I've read these books numerous times. Uh, you know, probably the last time I read them, it's been a while, it was probably 15 years ago, so it's good to get back to these books after such a long break. But not a big fantasy fan either, but I do like Tolkien because it was such a pivotal part of my childhood. It's three things for me. There's three very distinct problems that I have with fantasy. One, it's just understanding it. It's the names of places and people and all the creatures. Keeping track of all of that, it all starts to sound the same to me. So I literally have trouble following what's going on, who's who and whatever. In print, when they're all just ergy, burgy, and wergy, I struggle. And that's just one thing. Following the story is harder when you have these fantastical names. Another thing is I find that this literature tends to dwell on details. It's about building a world, and I like economical storytelling. I like things to move. I like things to have a pace, theme, metaphor. These are the things I'm looking for. I don't need to have a description of the spoons they use, you know, and I feel like For some people, there's not enough details for absorbing the world. They really want to know everything about these creatures and places. They want to envision it. It's painting a picture for them, and I usually need far less detail than what's in these very thick kind of books. And then lastly, it's just got to be said, there's kind of a social stigma associated to this. When I was into that D&D phase, it was associated with certain people (laughs) that I would not become friends with for much longer. There's sort of a, a nerd stigma. I don't know what to say. There's sort of a people that really get into this, whether it's true or not, it appears as if they're more removed from reality. 
and that the fantasy genre kind of reminds me of friends I used to like but then grew apart from. So I'm trying to call up that friend. We're going to see if I can like fantasy fiction again. I think Tolkien is a good place to start. He certainly is considered by most as the godfather, right, of, of this whole kind of genre? That's what I would assume. I mean, he's building off a of myth and fairy tales, but I think you really did update that, and I'll be interested to see what your take is as we go through The Hobbit, because I think there's definitely some of those things that you protest with fantasy stories going on here, but I don't think he falls into all those conventions. Yes, there's lots of names and races and that, but I don't know if he does the grand world building that is more associated with science fiction fantasy type novels today. I mean, here we have The Hobbit and we had the Lord of the Rings trilogy and he had a few other books that never got finished, but I think he was moving in that direction, but well, we'll talk about The Hobbit. Is it so vast and grand that you get lost in all the names of the cities and characters? And, you know, I always felt with Tolkien, I gotta study up on my geographical terms. There's forges and hills and valley, like, that's where I associate with Tolkien, is all those different ways to describe the lay of the land. Well, there is a little map in the front of my book. It's, I gotta say right off the bat, I feel like I got the wrong copy. I picked this up from the library. It's a cheap knockoff movie tie in paperback. I have seen other editions since that have pictures in them, and I feel like illustrations and maps, and the more you can get that in in your book, whether you're reading it for children or for yourself, I say go for it. I actually would have benefited, I think, from having some artist help illustrate this world for me, because it is a lot of jargon and words and unfamiliar concepts. And if you don't have a really great vivid imagination, if you can't read this prose and instantly imagine what it might be, uh, yeah, definitely go for the illustrated version. Yeah, and if you look around, you can find that illustrated to actually be J.R.R. Tolkien. The edition I have, it was a copy my father gave to me on my 10th birthday, a hardcover edition, where it has maps drawn by Tolkien and just has illustrations, uh, maybe about 10 illustrations throughout of different scenes of the trolls and Bjorn's lair and different things like that. I definitely used the maps while I was reading this. It helped me follow how close are they to the dragon at this point. And, you know, what forest are they in this time out of the many forests mentioned? Yeah, I flipped back a couple of times. There was two maps right at the beginning. But again, I know that there's much more detailed versions of that and would have been appreciated. In some ways, I think it's made for movies, at least for people like me, because seeing it is easier than imagining it from prose. Before I started to do my homework for this podcast, I I don't think I could have told you even when this book was written. J.R.R. Tolkien, I knew he was a 20th century writer. I didn't know whether it was the turn of the century or the 1950s, the 1970s. I couldn't have told you when this was written. But So I did a little research. And by a little research, I mean I looked at the wiki page <laughs> and, a, and a couple other sites. But basically, it, it seems to me that I get the sense that he is Bilbo Baggins. Like, I just imagine that he was this, like, little jolly Englishman who did go to war. He served in World War One and had his adventures early in life and then sort of retired and became a professor and, and studied classics and really did a lot of adaptations and translations of Beowulf. And, you know, he befriended C.S. Lewis, who wrote the, the Narnia series. And I think that's where he really developed uh, a mutual admiration for children's literature and the power that it has, fantasies particularly, for teaching lessons and, and helping development. This was originally written for his kids. And I, I think I remembered that. I think I read The Hobbit and really enjoyed it in grade school, and then tried to tackle the later Lord of the Rings books and found them much more dense, much harder to read. The prose here, I think, is made for bedtime reading. If you have children, I feel like they can follow the story. 
Yeah, th- actually, the first way I experienced The Hobbit was my parents reading it to me and my siblings while we were driving on summer vacations. That's where I first experienced, and then I read it myself. It was years and years later until I tried to tackle Lord of the Rings. Uh, trying to do that as a 10-year-old wasn't quite as satisfying as The Hobbit. Do you know, did he have it all worked out? This came about somewhere in the early 1930s. It was printed, it was published in 1937, but it came years before. Had he worked out all of this mythology that he would later do in Lord of the Rings? Or I know that those books came later. Yeah, I don't know how much of the mythology had worked out the version of the hobbit we're going to be discussing is actually not the original version this is the second edition the first edition it had some minor differences well Gollum, he didn't lose a ring he traded it to bilbo during a riddle game instead of the way it plays out in the edition that's around now where he lost the ring and bilbo found it after he did the hobbit you know the publisher wanted more hobbit centric stories from him. He tried to do the Samarillion and it, if you ever try to read the... It's, it's an unfinished novel. It's almost impossible to read unless you are hard, hardcore Tolkien. I haven't even been able to do it. But th- they said, no, we want more Hobbits. So he did Lord of the Rings and after doing Lord of the Rings he went and revised a lot of things in The Hobbit so it tied in better. He actually tried to do a third edition of The Hobbit. He started where he was trying to write it more adult, more darker to fit the tone of Lord of the Rings and he was just never happy with it. Quit after writing three or four chapters. So it was a start. I think you see a lot of the mythology beginning. I don't have that first edition to compare all the different changes, but I think most of the mythology was establishing here. You know, a lot of the elves or some of the different races of elves were called gnomes in that first edition. So there were some major changes that he made to make it fit that Lord of the Rings, which came later. Okay. Well, you know, I think the perspective is correct. I think of this as a children's story, whether you're reading it to children or not. I'm not saying if you're an adult, don't go near it, but I think of it as a story about childhood and growing up and maturity. I mean, the way that I look at Bilbo Baggins, at any rate, is that he is like this creature that is like a child. I mean, he still lives in the home that his parents built for him, and he's kind of a a sheltered kid. Not spoiled so much, but just unaware of the world. And he's about the same height as a kid, and he's got, like, furry little feet. It just sounds like an Ewok or something. It just sounds like a teddy bear or something. Kids are going to instantly attach to Bilbo. I think he is the strongest written character in the entire story, and I think that his journey away from being a introvert into being a man of the world is what this Hobbit is about, or at least I think that's the lessons that I feel when I look at it as a children's story. You brought up the wars that Tolkien he was in World War One. I, I do see some of that here. You know, you take someone that has lived in the world. When I read about Bilbo and his closets and closets of clothes at the beginning, he seems very vain and middle class. And so, yeah, I think there is that child to adulthood aspect. I also think you know Tolkien taking from his own experiences and going from you know, a normal citizen to being pulled into this great war and experiencing all these different battles. And, you know, you could read whole dissertations, especially with Lord of the Rings, on how that associates with Germany and all the different battles in World War II. So I think there are aspects of that, but there's definitely a tale of someone comfortable with life, whether a child or uh, someone middle class, just a normal citizen being pulled into either adulthood or the war and going on an unexpected journey. 
tricked, you could say, because I don't think he would go on this journey were it not for Gandalf. And Gandalf, my memory was he was this kick-ass wizard that could do everything, that he was really kind of almost a frightening character in some respects because he exuded power so easily. Here, in The Hobbit at least, I see him much more paternal. I see him as this long-lost family friend. He has this relationship with the mother's side of Bilbo. That I think the uh, family name is Took. Old Took was his grandfather, and Gandalf and him had many different adventures. He's come back, and I think he's a little disappointed to see the descendant be such a homebody. His goal is to prod this guy to, to grow up, to, to see a little bit more of the world. So he basically frames him to these 13 dwarves as their perfect burglar to help them on this quest that they're about to start. Yeah, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to, when I'm reading this as an adult, you know, as a kid, oh, of course, yeah, Bill is going to go on a journey. Well, why? Why would you take a hobbit? And like you said, there's all this mythology about his mother's side, the Tooks, where, you know, they were more adventurous. They might have had a, been half fairy or something. And so, okay, but why still a hobbit? And really, all I could tell was that they couldn't get a warrior or a hero. They were all fighting wars. So Gandalf knows about this secret door. So why not get a burglar? And I guess Bilbo was the best burglar he knew. It does talk about hobbits. They're very quiet, and they could run around and not be heard by man. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me reading this is the narrative seems to shift. You get this narrator who talks to you directly sometimes and tells you what's going to happen, and, you know, here's how golf was created, and hobbits are still running around today. Yeah, this is a very childlike telling. Even when we get the dwarves entering to the hobbit hole, it's a funny scene. They come one or two at a time, but it, it's so childlike. It talks about each of their different color hoods, and you know, one's red and one's green, and one thing that stands out to me, there, there's a lot of characters in this book. 13 Dwarves, Gandalf, Bilbo, we'll have other characters throughout. Rule of seven, you know, go by what Lucas set up. Too many characters, I could probably name half the dwarves off my hand. Feely Keely, they're young. That's all I really know about these dwarves, because it mentions how young they are throughout, and Thorin, he's the leader. I don't get a big sense of these dwarves. Yeah, it's more about Bilbo and Gandalf. I get a sense of who they are, but not this party of dwarves. I feel like every cast of characters that Bilbo meets, not the enemies, not the villains that he fights, but the characters that he learns and grows and changes from get a little bit taller each time. Now he's dealing with dwarves, which are taller than him, but are still diminutive people, and that later down this mission, he's going to meet elves, which are just a little bit taller, and it's all going to end with actual man. This Again, I see this as a story of about growing into manhood. He's eventually going to meet a man, and by that point, he's going to make mature decisions. But at this point, I feel like Yes, because he is the smallest and the only one that isn't one of the dwarves. He's also kind of a, a wimp. They storm into his place and he gets scared at the idea about even leaving it for a second. I think that they think that Gandalf has made a mistake, but they don't want to say that. So it really is, yeah, a lot of the humor, a lot of the early humor is about whether we think Bilbo is going to measure up and to help out this crew or be a hindrance to them. He certainly looks like more of a problem early on than he is later in the story. I think that's, again, classic storytelling, especially when you're talking to children. It's the scared child, and they'll grow up to go on this journey and become a man or a woman or a great warrior. They'll overcome their fears. Though I, I do wonder, well, we'll talk about it throughout this book, what does Bilbo do? The narrator tells us repeatedly, he's going to do something great. Gandalf tells us repeatedly, he's going to do something great and make it worth it that he was here. I 
do wonder how much he really does do this entire journey. There's only a couple things, and I think that normally, because of the pacing, because this is a 300-page novel as opposed to a 10-page fairy tale, it does get lost sometimes. I, I gotta say, Bilbo's story does get occasionally overshadowed by some of the other things. My preference, if I were an editor, would to never let too many paragraphs go by without knowing what Bilbo was doing, because to me, it is his story. The only two dwarves that matter to me are Thorin Oakenshield, because he's their displaced king. He's almost like the dwarf version of Bilbo. He wants to just stay home too, but he's been displaced from it. So it's all about him moving back to that mountain and reclaiming his throne. And so I see him really in direct contrast to Bilbo. The other dwarf that seems to matter is, is Bombor. He's the comic relief. He's fat. Basically, that's what they got with that one. He's fat. He's trailing. He gets, he falls in the water. He gets them into some trouble just by being portly. I think a lot about Snow White, seven dwarves as opposed to 13, but I, I think about Snow White. I also, for some reason, I think it's because of the rhyming names. I think about Rudolph. Yes. <laughs> Dancer and Prancer, Vixen. There's something about the, the sing-song quality of all their rhyming names, but most of the other ones, they're not characters, they're more like a chorus. Yeah, I think this is where the for children aspect really comes in when you look at the character and character development. The dwarves, yeah, there's only a couple that make an impression. Bilbo, he does do something every once in a while. He'll steal a purse from out of a troll's pocket or steal a cup from a dragon. And then Gandalf, this is what really confuses me. Gandalf, he seems like the coolest character. He's the wizard and he's kind of leading them and he's always shooting off bright flashes when goblins are attacking. And yet he disappears a lot in this story. It's just like, oh, I gotta go take care of something else down the stream in another village. I'll see you guys later, maybe. It's a weird form of storytelling. It it, it almost becomes vignettes of adventures and doesn't feel very cohesive. It, It almost feels like there's something else going on. And now maybe these were changes that Tolkien made in the second edition. Gandalf going off to fight the Necromancer, but it it's just seems strange. He'll disappear and then show up when he's most needed. Yeah, you know, I didn't really like that. He disappears, he fights a bad wizard, and one of the gross forests full of spiders turns nice. That's a different story than Bilbo's story. So I don't really see why that's important. The way that I take it is if Gandalf is a father figure, you know, he's a working dad. You know, he comes in, yay, he saves the day. He seems to have all the power, but he disappears a lot. And if this is a story about maturity, at some point, you do leave home and you do lose contact with your parents and you have to find your own way. I think, at least thematically, that's how I explain Gandalf disappearing. Once they get to Mirkwood, that's a... And, and they know it's coming. He's prepped them for this. He's like, at some point, I got something better to do, which I think is a terrible <laughs> thing to say. But be, be that as it may, for whatever reason, I, the phony that it is, at some point, they have to stand on their own. And that's kind of how I see it. But to that point, initially, he's kind of saving their ass. He definitely helps them out with the trolls or the goblins. I got confused. There are trolls and goblins. What's the difference? And sometimes the goblins are called orcs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought they were called orcs in this world. I, I didn't get it. Well, mine has a preface that says orcs is the uh, hobbit tease for goblins. So sometimes they use the hobbit word and sometimes they use, I guess, the English word. That was Tolkien's explanation. I think maybe he was making some slight changes in the second edition to fit the many orcs that we'll read about in Lord of the Rings. But yeah, the trolls, they seem... I think they call them their giant and slumbering and kind of dim-witted. I don't know if the goblins are any smarter, but they seem quicker and they live underground. And neither one seems to like the light very much, though. 
Yeah, I I never really thought about it, but there are two different things. Uh, I guess I got confused by Troll 2, the movie, which (laughs) which actually was about goblins. I didn't recognize the difference. I would have appreciated a picture to to show me that difference. But also, same thing with elves. He meets three different tribes of elves throughout this. The first one in Rivendale seemed like nice guys, and then there's ones in Mirkwood that are take them prisoner, and then later there's some by the river that are kind of cool, but then become problems for them when they get displaced by the dragon. I Why so many variances of the same creature? To me, this feels like a difference between me and a fantasy lover. A fantasy lover would love to watch the different permutations of Elf. Me, I don't want to focus on that stuff. Let's keep to the story. That's extra details I don't need. Yeah, there's a whole adventure with, I guess, the nice elves in Rivendale where, what, they just hang out there for a couple of weeks eating and getting fat and looking at maps. I don't know how much that progresses the story. There's some exposition about moon runes <laughs> thrown out there that I guess will p- come into play later on. But I, I do agree with you, Stuart. If you're a fantasy person, I guess you're eating all this up. It, one of the things that really stood out to me, C.S. Lewis, he was a counterpart of Tolkien's. They would meet together. And Lewis's writing always, the Chronicles of Narnia, I think I read all of them, or most of them at least when I was a kid. That was always just seemed like, here, let's throw every fantasy element. We're going to have talking animals and goblins and... And all those different things. I always thought that Tolkien was more refined, but reading this, no, there's all these different elves. How many different kinds of talking birds are there in this story? There's <laughs> eagles and finches and crows and ravens that all talk. I guess if this scratches some itch for you, if, if you get into this kind of world, to me this seems childish with all these talking animals that come in and out and help them, or some of them bad. There's talking wolves, or at least they have their own wolf language, and they're the bad guys. You know what? I have no doubt that Tolkien's a very smart man and studied these classics. He's probably drawing all these different characters from different cultures and their myths. Gollum, there is a Gollum different spelling that comes from Jewish myth and I just feel like maybe these all do make sense. If you go back and you study Beowulf and you study all the the classics here, it goes over my head. If there's a metaphorical reason for using all of these variances, I don't get it. And as someone that just wants to see Bilbo's story, it becomes distracting. I don't feel like I really become engaged with Bilbo on the adventure until he meets Gollum, which is, I think, a favorite of everybody. Everyone knows Gollum becomes a a major figure later in the next trilogy. And he's got a good intro here with riddles. I mean, what kid doesn't like to play riddle games? I had a riddle book. This was great fun then and now. Yeah, this is the strongest part for me as well. It's not these action scenes, these slashing their way through the Goblin King and the mountains. It's this tense moment. I I do love the description of Gollum and how like he's creeping up. He can see Bilbo in the dark, but Bilbo can't see him, and they have this contest of riddles. To me, it's very tense, and there's a scene that mirrors it later on where Bilbo finally meets Smog, and there's kind of this game of riddles, and they talk in metaphor, and to me, that's the strongest part, is when it does focus on Bilbo, because he does seem like, besides Gandalf, maybe one of the smarter characters. The dwarves all seem silly to me. Even Thor and Oakenshield, it talks about he'll just drone on and on and on to try to sound grand. They all sound foolish, but Bilbo, I could see you know, if Gandalf knew the side of him, he is a smart character, and I think these are the best moments when it focuses on him in these moments of danger. 
That said, he cheats, right? I gotta say, if you're playing a riddle game, you gotta come up with something equally good. What's in my pocket is not the same thing as a riddle. That is a guessing game. That's nothing that you could ever infer. So I feel bad for Gollum when he gets tricked out of being able to eat Bilbo. Not that I wanted Bilbo eaten, but I really do feel like there's no way he could possibly have guessed that he found his ring and that it's in the pocket. Yeah, I don't blame him too much for going after Bilbo and trying to eat him. I mean, he's already an unsavory character, but yes, I agree. He does get kind of cheated out of that game. Yeah, and you mentioned the fact that this turn of events kind of feels like a later meeting with him and the dragon. I feel like the next encounter they have mirrors what happened to Bilbo. If you remember when Bilbo had all the dwarves swarm his little hobbit hole, it was done one at a time and he didn't know it was going to be a party until it was already there. Well, that's what they do to the next character. This shape-shifting, sometimes it's a bear, sometimes it's a man named Bjorn. Yeah, they do the same kind of trick. Gandalf tells them to come up one at a time. I do see parallels between what chapters here are adventures here. Gollum and Smog, the way the dwarves were introduced to Bilbo and Bjorn. Uh, there's another moment later on we'll talk about. But I do feel like he sets up here's it done on a small scale and then let's up the danger a little bit. Now we gotta like try to get in cozy with this shape-shifting beer, man. I, I do like this, though. I, there are times where I really like the writing. It's when it focuses on character. I like Bjorn and just how he's getting both annoyed that there's more and more to this party, but he's also getting enveloped in this tale that Gandalf is telling about their adventures thus far. I do like when this focuses on character because I think Tolkien can write a good character. It's not always just these kind of vague dwarves with different colored hats, but there are interesting people. Yeah, I think that this guy is more mature than the dwarves. Again, each time they go down the road, I feel like Bilbo is seeing someone to emulate, learn from, grow from. The fact that he's half man, half bear, you know, he's a, a literal and metaphorical bigger presence than these petty dwarves that are with him. And at some point, and it hasn't happened quite yet, Bilbo is going to take the lead of this journey. I think that he does learn to go from the back of the line to the front, but it hasn't quite happened yet. I will admit, around this point, this is where Gandalf is saying, I gotta go, and you're on your own when you go into Mirkwood and all of that. I'm starting to have trouble with the names. At this point, I am starting to have that bias come up of like, I have enough characters, I'm afraid I'm gonna meet more characters. I'm actually relieved when the next characters we meet don't have names at all. They're just big, scary spiders. Yeah, and this is where, I guess, Bilbo starts earning the respect of the dwarves. He uses the magic ring. I, this is, I think, what stands out the most, because it becomes such a big deal in Lord of the Rings. It's all about a ring. But here he uses that ring that makes him invisible that he found in Gollum's cave, and he's able to... Again, he uses his brains, though. He throws the spiders off, leads them away from the dwarves who have all been caught and wrapped up in webs, and is able to circle around. That, that's what I like about Bilbo, you know? A good character, especially one this small, it's not just about how well he could swing, sting his elven blade, but how he could use his smarts to get out of these larger-than-life, especially for a little hobbit, problems. Yeah, but I do want to point out, yeah, he does have a knife at this point, and I think that part of the road of maturity is he makes his first kill here, right? This is the first time he's killed, he stabs his spider. Maybe that's not a horrible thing. I've crushed a few <laughs> myself, I'll confess to that. These are large spiders, though. <laughs> they are really large and scary, and I gotta say, I have a spider phobia, so this, I, I'm all for it. Uh, sting away. But I wonder if this is like, yeah, marching off to war. If, if indeed Bilbo is Tolkien, was this the moment that he left his parents, left Gandalf, and went off to fight in a war. Maybe I'm drawing too much from a personal story, but I have to wonder if Tolkien 
all writers do, right? Bits of their life become parts of the story. So whether you want to see this whole journey as Tolkien's, I do feel like, yeah, this is a character that's having to stand on his own and lead this troop now, save them when they are all incapacitated, and kill. And that is a step towards manhood, or at least maturity. Yeah, and it's not just that he saves them from spiders, but now we encounter the wood elves, and they take them all capture, except Bilbo, because he's invisible, and it, again, up to him to come up with a way to rescue everyone. One of the things I find funny, there's so many time lapses in this book. I know these movies, they're three, like, three-hour movies, they seem to go on forever, but the way the story's told, it's like, oh yeah, he hid in corners and ate their meat and drank their wine for two weeks while coming up with a plan and being invisible. Like, they take their time in this journey. It's a matter of years, probably, or at least a year. I, I lose track, but definitely several months have passed during all of this. And yeah, a certain stop can be weeks at a time. It really, the epic feel, it's only a couple of words, but yeah, in a movie, if you want to translate what's happening, length is the correct way to feel. I mean, it isn't easy to get to this mountain, nor should it be. But uh yeah, I like this scene because this is the first time I feel like Bilbo uses his smarts and it wasn't cheating. Goblin, he kind of shouldn't have gotten out of that one. But here, putting him in the barrels, I mean, yeah, it's risky. And yeah, sure, someone could have sprung a leak and drowned or, you know, gotten battered around. It sounds like it was very violent. They come out of this very bruised. And even Bilbo realizes almost too late that he doesn't have a, a barrel for himself and has to, like, like, ride atop of them. He hasn't totally worked it out, but he is starting to develop those critical thinking skills. And if this is a story of maturity, I'm seeing that he is a better adventurer now than he would have been early on the road. If this had been the first elves that he met in Rivendale, he wouldn't have gotten out of here. After this adventure, they, they they go through Lake Town, and there's more geography to discuss, rivers and streams and valleys. But they finally get to the Lonely Mountain, where Smog is, where the dwarves' treasure is. This used to be a, a whole city of dwarves under the mountain, and there are human cities all around it, which are all now desolated because of Smog the Dragon. Dragons seem very simplistic, like many things do, at least in this story, The Hobbit. The dragons just like gold, they rub around in it, and it satisfies them. That's all I can tell is the reason why there's a dragon that took their treasure. Yeah, it just made me think about Beowulf, and it's been a long time since I've read Beowulf, almost as long as The Hobbit, but yeah, it seems like a classic go-to for fantasy. Like, you gotta have a dragon in there, but why it was a dragon or what this dragon wanted. I, I guess I see him just basically as the personification of the biggest scariest thing they've encountered. They've encountered big spiders and creatures that are bigger than them, but this is as big as it gets. So, the threat looms large. What's funny to me is that they're not the ones to solve this. I didn't remember any of this last part of the novel the way that it happens. And it actually surprised me. This dragon gets taken out, not by the hobbits, not by the dwarves, by a man, and there are still 50 pages left. I was stunned. I had no idea. I, I remember disliking it as a kid. I can actually remember skimming because I'm like, oh, this is a story about them fighting a dragon and once they're done with the dragon, why aren't we done? What's interesting is that I think that Tolkien wants us to think about more practical matters and it's more interesting as an adult to read these last 50 pages than it would be if you were a kid. I always think that, you know, post-war stories are more interesting than battle stories. Yes, fighting solves conflicts decisively, and, you know, the battlefield is what mints a hero and all that. I, I get that. But I also think that they're forced to think about practical matters as soon as the dragon is out of there. Like, how am I going to get this home? 
Did we have a plan for killing this dragon? What are we going to do now that we've displaced all these people with the dragon that's burned down their cities and they want reparations and they, they're coming for our gold? I think all the things that develop in this are shockingly sophisticated for a kid's story. He's now adult, having to make mature decisions. Yeah, I got a lot more out of it this time. Actually, it's been a while since I read this. Like I said, I remember, we'll talk about the Battle of Five Armies. I remember Smog being involved with that. Right. He was flying around. But no, he's taken out with a bow and arrow. It's, I guess, a black arrow. It's a special arrow. And there's a whole story about talking birds, how one character, the bard, figures out exactly where to shoot this dragon. But he's Smog is defeated quite easily, which is funny having this whole story being built up to this dragon. And then there are some great moments, again, like I said, with Bilbo and the dragon trading wits. But we've talked a lot about parallels where one adventure is mirrored later. There's a chapter early on out of the frying pan into the fire where the dwarves and Bilbo and Gandalf, they go on this big adventure in the mines and the goblins chase them and they finally get out and then they're trapped in burning trees with wolves and goblins all around them. And that's how I see this. So going from the dragon to, yeah, to these peace negotiations, like there is more problems because they defeated the dragon than they had when they were trying to figure out how to get all their gold out of there. Now they have elves and men building arms to fight them for their share of the gold. This dragon burned down part of Lake Town. And so I, I do see it as a grander parallel of that little adventure we saw earlier on. And Bilbo and Thorin kind of switch places here. I mean, Thorin has reached his home and he becomes the homebody that Bilbo was at the beginning of the story. He's just like, nope, it's mine and I'm not leaving and you're not getting any of it and I'll decide if you earn something later down the road, but leave me alone and if you think you're going to take it by force, you got another thing coming. He becomes very stubborn and I'm not going to say he doesn't make a point, but I, I feel like Bilbo takes a more mature approach and he actually becomes the burglar he never was. In order to solve this conflict, he steals the one piece of treasure that Thorin really can't live without. There's this thing called the Arkenstone. I don't know what an Arkenstone is, but I'm imagining it's like a family crest or something. It's It's been in his family. It, it's the thing that most represents who he is as a person in a material object. And Bilbo seals that, gives it to the other side, so that he'll have to negotiate with him. Yeah, again, I'm wondering, Gandalf kept saying, and this narrator kept saying, Bilbo's going to do something great. Now, we know, yes, he was able to find this door that led into the side passage to get into the den with smog in it. But is this his point of maturation? Because there's going to be a big battle, and Bilbo's going to be knocked out. He's not going to kill anyone. He's not going to defend anything. He's going to be lying on the ground. But he, I guess he had the foresight to try to broker a peace which stalled these two sides, dwarves and men and the elves, from fighting each other, which would have been disastrous if the other two armies, the goblins and the wolves, would have descended on a mid-battle. I think that's true. I take it, my cues from Gandalf. If Gandalf likes it, I like it. Gandalf has been watching in the wings. He pops out, and, and once he sees this handoff of the Arkestone to the elves and the humans, he goes, very good, Hobbit. You know, he's very proud that Bilbo was going to go beyond. A, he turned into a burglar, which he had not been, and Gandalf had always called him. He turned into a burglar to negotiate this peace. I think it shows some kind of maturity. Whether or not I would have made the same choice, I can't say. And whether or not Thorin had taken the stance, there are goblins and wolves coming to attack them. I think that they're stronger by being united than, yes, divided. So, yes, this is one more battle in here. It was not the culmination. It really is what's called the 
Battle of the Five Armies. Elves, men, dwarves against goblins and wild wolves. Though there are some eagles. There seems to be a sixth army. Yes, but <laughs> you're right. You're right. The eagles. Is that America? I kept wondering if some of these things were metaphors for real battles or for real things. I, I have no idea whether there's any metaphorical connections to any of this. I've read much more with the metaphors with Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure about The Hobbit. And Lord of the Rings, they'll sail off to the West. And that's people saying they're going off to America and leaving Europe that's been ravaged by this war. I'm, I'm sure there's people that have drawn those parallels with The Hobbit as well, though. Right. I just don't have the history or the knowledge to say decisively what it is. But there's a lot of things going on. And I feel like this is where a movie might excel more than on the page. For some people, this might be exciting to read. For me, it's a little bit confusing. I struggle to keep track of what's what and who's who with all of the foreign names. Yeah, people are running to the east to swap around and come on the west side of this rock and that. Yeah, I'm sure there are people that love this kind of stuff. I felt like when I've like when I've tried to read Tom Clancy in the past, like he gets real detailed. I just get lost with all these battle terms, and it, I feel that way here. Though I feel like Tolkien skips most of the fighting. Again, Bilbo's knocked out and he wakes up, and they give a brief summary of what happened later. I'm actually glad it doesn't go on and on and on for this last battle. Yeah, he wakes up to find that Thorin is dying, basically, and I feel like he's kind of burying his greedy self. Like in some way, looking at the lesson here, this is where he's fully matured is to lose someone and for that someone to be the homebody. I feel like this is where it transpires because Bilbo is going to get back on the road and go all the way back that he came, but they're going to skip over all of that. That wasn't important. The journey, the there and back again, really it's only the there that really changed him. Going back, he's confident and he's up here really to Gandalf and to Bjorn when he walks. They skip over large of it. I'll be curious to know if Peter Jackson lingers on it. I know he, he's want to do that, but the voyage home is a shadow of what the mission there was. Yeah, you talk about maturity and this hobbit that started off very vain and with all his wardrobes and all his food. He only takes like two bags of gold home with them. And he's like, oh, that's all the pony could carry. And he has maturity. He's like, ah, oh, people will be trying to murder me on the way home if I have this 14th cut of my gold. And it's very tone down and it's him and Gandalf and Bjorn spend some time where you get a lot of what changes in the land on this journey home you know there's Bjorn there's a story he went and fought more of the goblins now there's more bear people that can change their shape and forces have changed and things seem more peaceful they don't even have to go through Mirkwood this time they could go along the mountains that they wanted to skip uh, previously because the goblins are so scared they're dug themselves deep down and won't come up the world is a better place I mean literally if you just want to boil it down by by what Gandalf did, by what Bilbo did, by what Bjorn did, all of the hardship that they endured getting there has changed and made going back a much easier task. It's easier to walk the world as a mature adult than it was as a frightened and ignorant hobbit. And the joke is when he finally gets home, you know, it was presumed that he was dead. Nobody, I guess, thought he was coming back and his house sold to somebody else. <laughs> yes, and, they've auctioned everything off. I, yeah. I did find this funny. Yeah, and, and he's cool with it. Again, you know, the old him would be like, no, that's my family home and would be obsessed with these things. And if there's a lesson here for me, my takeaway is that it really is about the experience and not about the treasures that you bring home. That it really, the memories, I think what drives him is not the gold, but the friendship and the bond and the struggle. I, I think that's a good message for the world. I appreciate experiences. I appreciate worldliness over material value. I think that's a good lesson to instill in children. Yeah, I, I think this is a great 
children's tale. As an adult, there, there are moments that really work, but I see this more now that I'm an adult, not a child reading it, that this is geared towards children, and I can appreciate that. Children need their stories, and again, as an adult, I was able to appreciate this and get the moral of the story, if you want to put it like that. Yeah, and I, I definitely skimmed, or I wanted to. You know, I definitely felt like there were parts where I'm like, too much information. You know what, anytime there was a song, <laughs> basically, I'm not, I don't read poetry. You didn't so. sing the songs out loud like I did. <laughs> I didn't, but that would be fun. I, I think that would be fun. If you were reading it to children, it might be a game for you guys to write a song based on the lyrics that are here. And I'm presuming that that's exactly what Peter Jackson did. I'm presuming, word for word, some of these poems are actually in the movies. We'll see when we get there. But as far as reading them, no. Every time there was a song, I'm like, skip. Don't need to consume this at all. But the prose is easy to read and to follow. And I think for any age range, yeah, I think that you can enjoy this. I think you would enjoy it best with a child audience. I don't think this falls too deep into those genre traps. Maybe with Lord of the Rings, when we get there, he'll go off a bit more. But here, yes, it's otherworldly, but he also brings real-world things to it. Again, like golf and, and soccer and different sports and different terms that we can associate with it. It really feels like he was playing with fairy tale here, but wasn't going full-board fantasy. Yeah, I hope that they keep some of the humor. I, I know that it is an epic, and I know that there's the number of important characters is going to grow exponentially. But I hope I like Frodo as much as I like Bilbo, and I think I'll be just fine, even though I know, yeah, it gets denser from here. Where is next? I gotta say, closing the cover on this book when I was done, I don't remember enough about the Lord of the Rings movies to exactly remember what story has been set up. I know, obviously, he still has the ring. That was the one thing that was an important detail, that Bilbo, that was one of the pieces of gold that he did keep was this ring, and so, yes, that'll be coming into play in future generations, but I feel like this is a self-contained story. It didn't necessarily beg to have a sequel or a trilogy. No, it's just because it was such a hit that the publisher wanted more, and so Tolkien started writing again. He started with the Samarillion. That, the, the publisher's like, no, we want Hobbits. So then he switched lanes and went to this Hobbit-centric Lord of the Rings. Oh, it's a commerce decision. What do you know? Sometimes <laughs> doing it for money is the right thing. We'll find out if that's true. That's the next thing we're going to be covering here at Books and Nachos. Next week, we begin Lord of the Rings with Fellowship of the Rings. As we begin covering those movies, we'll be releasing the podcast first so that you can know the original text and then hopefully join us as we compare it to Peter Jackson's epic adaptation leading all the way to the new hobbit this december well thank you jacob for joining me it's been a lot of fun to do this with somebody else i gotta say i might have been a little afraid to to tread into middle earth without somebody else to to help guide me but it's always <laughs> it's always fun to have uh, another companion go on the journey yeah it's been fun revisiting this tale and i look forward to revisiting the lord of the rings with you all right well we'll do that next week thanks so much keep reading Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.